Moncrief on News Talk. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cent uh, time once again uh, to uh, look at some stories from other parts uh, of the planet that we might necessarily give that much attention to. Jonathan DeBurka Butler uh, joins us once again. Good afternoon, Jonathan. Sean, how are you keeping? Uh, right. So, I mean, the Uyghurs, obviously, uh, and their plight in China, has uh, you've mentioned many times, people may well be familiar with it. Now, uh, the, the, there has been an announcement of sanctions from the UK, the EU, the US and Canada. So is this really going to hurt the Chinese or is it possible to hurt the Chinese? Yeah, that's the underlying question. So, I mean... Um, when I saw this initially, and I only saw it last night because it was kind of, it was late sort of breaking news, um, I went, oh, right, finally something is happening uh, around this. And the headline suggested, you know, that this was a big deal, you know, sanctions against China over Uyghur camps, and that was the headline. So you, but when you dig in a little deeper, um, you kind of begin to wonder how far are they really going, Right. So the, the the first first things first, right? So it's it's a coordinated, or or it seems to be at least parallel sanctions, right, uh, against Chinese officials who are involved in the mass internment of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, right? So it's the UK, the EU, the United States, and Canada, right? So they're all all taking an approach on this. And basically, what they've decided to do is they're doing a sort of a Venezuela style sanctions where they're basically picking out members of the administration and they're saying okay if you've got assets in europe or these are the other countries mentioned we're going to freeze them we're going to stop you from traveling to europe or the uk or wherever it is uh, and, and there'd be various other things as well right so mm. they've taken these sanctions against four uh, particular officials that are involved in in um, in this policy against the Uyghur mu- muslims in Xinjiang. okay and i suppose you know, one, one, one side of it is, okay, it's good news, they're doing something. The Chinese seem to have known that it was coming, or they had had warnings. They've replied basically saying that the EU and the UK and everybody else has to stop lecturing others on human rights and interfering in their internal affairs, which would suggest that they're not denying that this stuff is happening. Uh, they, 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 they accept that it's happening, but they say that it's a, it's a re-education to, to bring in one million people uh, into line uh, and uh, in line with how they would like to see that part of China become. And, and that's basically destroying the culture of the Uyghur Muslims in that part of the world. And, uh, and that's the policy. Yeah, I mean, I think they're probably, you know, they probably dispute around the, uh, the severity of the degree to what they're doing and how it's forcible, etc., uh, etc. Et it, it has, given that this has happened now, and it's only four people, so yeah. you can't really see it, see it hurting China that much. Yeah, well, it's, it's not going to. And the thing about it is, uh, when I was thinking about it yesterday, and, and I, I'd come to read the article a few times, there was a part of me that sort of said, right, well, what they've just done here is, is megaphone diplomacy. And then they're basically going to go into a back room, drink a couple of brandies and sign their economic deals. Right. So the European Union are in, are in the middle of doing a major investment deal with China. Right. They're just about to sign off. Now, the European Parliament still has to ratify that. But it's still got to go ahead. You know, the, the, the one thing that, that jumps out is that Germany is very anxious about imposing these sanctions on on these four people because they're worried about the economic fallout. Now, never mind the UK 
mm-hmm. who you know are, are are now out in the world paddling their own canoe and trying to do deals left and cent- right and center with everyone. So if you bear in mind that also the UK so far have done nothing in terms of sanctions around Hong Kong, even though you know the the democratic elections that were part of the Sino-British joint declaration on Hong Kong have now been stopped and are basically being done away with by the Chinese. You, you'd wonder, you know, how much they are are sort of piggybacking on the back of the other three big countries by imposing these sanctions or or, or coming in on these sanctions mm. as well. Uh, by and the same so token, it's, it's, it's not, sorry, Sean, go yeah, ahead. Sorry. Yeah, just by the same token, China, that like China's reaction, blacklisting MEPs, European diplomats, and and people from mm. think tanks. Uh, is that equally as tokenistic, given that a lot of those, I, I, as I understand it, yeah. somebody, a man called Adrian Zenz, who we interviewed last week uh, about, it was again about Uyghurs, but he's based in Washington. He probably had no plans to travel to China anyway, given he'd probably be arrested if he went there. Yeah, is he, he's an academic, isn't yes, he? Yes, yeah. yeah. So what, what, you know, what effect, no, no disrespect to him, but exactly your point, what effect is he going to have on economic policy and a, and a deal done between Brussels and and China. I mean, some of the some of the MEPs are part of the, the you know the Green Party, that kind of thing. Nothing against the Green Party, but you you you'd wonder how much clout that the people who have been blacklisted have, uh, and even if they can't travel, you know, how much is it going to change? And and you've got to bear in mind also who you're dealing with, particularly when it comes to the UK. I mean, you know, the Tories and the Chinese are you know, and the Chinese government, right, are two of the most practical and malleable and unprincipled, uh, you know, sets of politicians in the world and uh, will, will, you know, will maneuver and, and, you know, flex themselves in order to appear to be doing the right thing, but will, will ultimately do what's right economically for them. Mm. But then again, it looks like the EU is doing exactly that as well. Well, absolutely, absolutely. There's no, there's no doubt about it. Even more so, you could argue. Yeah, right. Uh, we'll uh, move on then to Tanzania uh, again. This might be a, this is a story that uh, hit a few headlines: uh, the death of uh, John Magafuli. And uh, so, how does that leave the presidency? There's a new president. Yeah, this uh, this was another one when I saw it last week. It really jumped out at me. I have to say because uh, it, this guy who had the nickname the Bulldozer. Uh, he's he looked like he was never going to go anywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. he was six years as the president. Uh, he he got the nickname as 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 you know, uh, because when he was finance minister, he had a reputation for getting things done, such as building roads and the like. And when he initially came in and became president, he really started off quite well. He sort of cleaned up the whole place and and told politicians that if they were traveling abroad, they weren't going first class, and hotel expenses and all that kind of thing were gone and. You know, extravagant parades and the like were cancelled, and he just didn't like that kind of stuff. But then he just went really, really too far, right? He started shutting down media. Opposition groups were people in opposition groups were arrested, and he became really quite dangerous. And towards the end, to be honest about it, it appears as if he was quite frankly a little bit mad. And mm-hmm. um, he was denying COVID and the existence of it. He was telling people to pray. Uh, and to basically inhale herbal-infused steam and that this would stop COVID. He was stopping the WHO from getting access to the numbers of people that were getting COVID. I, I think he even stopped registering the amount of people who were getting it. He just absolutely denied it, and he didn't want vaccine to come in. And I know I've gone a long way about answering your question, 
But how that changes the presidency is now you've got a completely new person, obviously. Uh, her name is uh, Samia Hassan. And there's a few things about her, okay? She was vice president under uh, Magafuli since 2015, but she's completely different, right? She's, she's thought to be a sort of a quieter person, a consensus builder. Uh, it's likely that she will look at this vaccine policy that's in place, as in they have none in Tanzania at the moment. Oh, God. Uh, and so it's potentially a new beginning for the country because things were becoming really quite divisive uh, in the country and very worrying. Um, another thing about her is that she's actually the first president who was born in Zanzibar, which is actually bizarre. I, I, I would have thought that, that Zanzibar would have contributed a president already, but they haven't. But it's, as I said, it's a new beginning for them. And uh, more than anything, hopefully it'll save lives because they'll bring a vaccine in. Right. OK. But uh, I suppose that the, the, the polarization that Magafuli would have created, that's, gonna, that's not going to be fixed uh, today nor the next day. No, not straight away, but but ultimately, you know, she she probably will ease up uh, policies around media and you know opposition being allowed to be opposition. Uh, there is another thing that she has to deal with um, on the border with Mozambique, which is of course this uh, these uh, extremists who are, who are operating in Cabo Delgado and and Tanzania has, has been dragged into that as well. So, like, it's a tough time for her. Uh, she's 61, but uh, there's a lot of hope around her presidency. And But that said, there was a lot of hope around Magafuli's presidency six years ago at the beginning as well. So we'll, uh, we'll see how it pans out. We'll see. Does she go full Robert Mugabe in, in time? <laughs> yeah. uh, right. Uh, Niger, we're going to go to next. 58 people killed in a gun attack. Yeah, and I'm not sure if it, if it made headlines anywhere no. uh, on, on, in this part of the world. Um, but... I suppose that's part of the problem. Um, attacks like this in Niger and its bordering countries, uh, Mali and Burkina Faso, they've become so regular that <clears throat> I think uh, people or, or media companies maybe are, are just kind of getting used to them. But it's a staggering number. I mean, these were 58 people who were returning from a, a livestock market, right? So these are ordinary people just trying to make a living and this bunch of of of, of terrorists uh, nobody's claimed it by the way i should i should uh, i should say but this bunch of terrorists basically pulled up beside them and, and shot 58 people dead i don't think there was any military personnel or anything like that uh, amongst the amongst the victims so they they weren't targeting that they're just going into these places and uh, wreaking havoc and, and it's not the first time that it's happened there was there was a massacre that left around 100 people, I, I seem to remember, in two villages in early January this year. And, you know, there's other attacks that that have happened in, in 2020 and 2019 as well. Um, so, yeah, very sad and, and very scary in, in this part of the world at the moment. Yeah. And well, would there be indications as to who might be responsible for this? Well, yeah, I mean, there, there is a group called Islamic State in the Greater Sahara who, who operate in this neck of the woods. But also, because of the government response to those extremists, what's happening is that um, other militants are, are beginning to grow now as well along ethnically divisive lines, if that makes sense. Mm. And that's the worry that it's going to develop slowly. Uh, and it's already actually speeding up in many ways, but that, that it's going to develop into something that really gets out of control very quickly. And the thing about it is, Sean, that all of these militants, they operate 
around all of these borders and you know a lot of these places that they hide in are obviously very difficult to find so they can kind of come in and out quite easily and and this is the reason why they've had such difficulty in the last few years uh, grappling with these groups Right, uh, Mexico and I go to next similar sort of story unfortunately 13 police officers uh, killed in an ambush Yeah, I'm afraid so Sean, yeah it's it's uh, this happened about 80 miles west of Mexico City um, and very simply, these officers were on patrol. They were traveling through this region um, to, to combat the many criminal groups that operate in this region, and they were ambushed. Uh, 13 police officers and investigators were killed in the ambush. It was in a very rural region, and it's, it's just the latest in a series of attacks on law enforcement um, by, by these criminal groups. There was a study done which I saw, which um, estimated that in this particular uh, state, which I think is the state of Mexico City, there are 26 criminal gangs operating here. Now, there's two big ones that you know continuously fight for control of key territories. And it's thought that one of these, uh, known as La Familia Michoacana, was, was involved in the, in the attack on these particular police officers. But in 2020, 524 police officers in Mexico were killed. Uh, it's a staggering number. And, and the problem for them is they're, they're, the, once they get into it, an awful lot of these police officers are approached by these gangs. And if they don't play ball, mm. they're immediately in trouble. But if they do play ball, then they're in trouble with the other side that these gangs are fighting against. So who would want to be a police officer in Mexico? I, in parts of Mexico, I just don't know. Yeah, I don't know how they, how they manage to recruit people. Uh, yeah. Right, uh, the US we're going to go to next. And uh, this is a, a peloton of people don't know. It's kind of a treadmill type thing. Uh, uh, and they've advised uh, not to let uh, kids use them. Yes, and, and, and really just to, to keep away, this is a, a company called Peloton and they make um, cycling machines and treadmills and obviously because of the pandemic and, and everything else that's going on around it, people can't get to the gym. And so they decide, you know, they're deciding to order these treadmills and use them at home. The company has actually said that it can't keep up, keep up with the demand. Hmm. But unfortunately, uh, there was a tragedy around it in which, uh, which a child has died um, when the uh, treadmill somehow got out of control and the boss of the company uh, called Peloton, his name is John Foley, has basically warned parents just to keep children and animals away from these particular machines. Uh, he didn't or couldn't go into more detail about the accident itself, but we know that there was another incident involving a three-year-old um, and, and, and the three-year-old suffered head injuries after oh. getting trapped under the treadmill. Now, thankfully, the 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 little person it doesn't say whether it was a boy or a girl uh, sean but it, it, the, the little person involved is going to make a full recovery but the the injuries were were fairly horrific um to begin with so yeah a, a kind of a sad and uh, story again unfortunately but but one that comes with the a warning i suppose yeah right canada uh, next and uh, an activist there is going to go on hunger strike in an attempt to stop logging yeah, this is a, this is a 25 year old activist in Nova Scotia, a man by the name of Jacob Fillmore. Now he's already on hunger strike. He's actually just over two weeks into it, and basically he started protesting in the capital of Nova Scotia, which is uh, Halifax. He was outside. He's been outside the Parliament there since December, 
Um, and the reason he was there is because nine of his fellow protesters were arrested by uh, police in December when they tried to uh, blockade logging roads, right, that were, were leading to a, to a old, what they call an old growth forest in southwestern uh, Nova Scotia, right? So this is a, an area that is being logged by a company called West 4, okay? And they're a big company, big logging company in that part of Canada. And the protesters, to cut a long short, story short, are, are obviously worried. They're, they're members of Extinction Rebellion. They're worried about climate change, rightfully. And uh, they have been trying to stop this company and stop the government of Nova Scotia from allowing these companies to continue with what they what is called clear cutting, which is basically clearing um, uh, old what are called old growth forests. All right, the forests that have been there for years. They say that in the last thirty five years, about half of the provinces provinces forests have been cleared and they're obviously very worried about that so this young man has gone on a, on a hunger strike he's looking for uh, the government to implement a moratorium on logging um and uh, he says he's not gonna he's not going to eat a bite until they do uh, which seems unlikely at the moment but we'll we'll see how it uh, escalates right uh, indeed and uh, uh, we've pretty much run out of time so uh, any key things to be looking out for uh, this week jonathan yeah, I, I think the couple of things, the results of the Knesset uh, elections mm. in Israel will be coming in today or tomorrow. I believe uh, the Chinese foreign minister who we didn't mention, but who is involved in that story that we, we had at the top there is on his way to Ankara to get into talks with uh, with Turkish officials there. I wonder what he'll have to say about the European Union and the UK. And then uh, there will be National Assembly elections on Sunday in Bulgaria, which will be quite interesting, given, given that they busted a Russian spy ring earlier this week. I wonder had that anything to do, do with the timing of the elections, but uh, we'll see how that goes. And how Russians interfering in elections? That doesn't sound likely. Jonathan, thanks a million uh, for speaking with us again this week. Jonathan de Butler there. You're listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. We're going to take a break. Back in a couple of minutes. Moncrief on News Talk.